Hey everyone, this is Dawei from Exponential, and you're listening to DJ Responsibly, a podcast where we invite protocol builders to showcase their innovations, how they work, as well as do a deep dive on risk. Exponential is an investment platform that makes it easy to discover, assess, and invest in DeFi yield opportunities. We want to help you understand the trade-offs and opportunities so you can degen responsibly. Our guest today is Mark Richardson, the project lead at Bancor. Bancor was the first protocol to introduce the AMM model in DeFi and pioneered features like single-sided liquidity and impermanent loss protection. Carbon is Bancor's new trading protocol that allows on-chain limit and range orders enabling traders to execute advanced strategies with low fees and high capital efficiency. In this episode, we'll talk about the evolution of the DEX landscape, the problems with the current AMM model, and how Carbon was built to address these issues. Hey Mark, excited to have you on to talk about Carbon and what you guys are building. Um, But before we get started, just curious about your crypto journey, how you got started, and and what led you to uh, uh, working at Bancor and Carbon. Yeah, suddenly. So um, my background is actually in organic chemistry. So I um, completed my PhD at the University of Melbourne. Um, I did my first postdoc at UCI in California. Um, came back to uh, Australia um, and started working for the Australian government um, for an agency called the CSIRO, uh, building um, medical sensing technology, basically. And uh, I was there. Uh, I had a uh, a three year contract from uh, beginning from 2019, so I spent about a year, um, you know, on the the projects that I was working on. Um, I had some uh, research funding to go to um, to Berlin and and uh, complete a, a pretty significant leg of work under the supervision of Peter Seberger at the Max Planck um, Institute for Colloids and Surfaces. Um, and my my flight out of Australia was about a week after um, Australia closed its borders to international travel during the pandemic. And so that wiped out a, a pretty significant um, swathe of, of work already completed. Um, and the city that I was living in, uh, and living in still, um, actually went into about a 24-month contiguous lockdown. I think it's a world record. Uh, for those that, that aren't aware, um, you know, Melbourne and the Australian government in particular were rather draconian in their lockdown measures during COVID. Um, and so that kind of ended my research career in science, unfortunately. Um, and so during 2020 and into 2021, I was looking for other ways that I could be useful. Uh, and so I spent a, a very significant amount of time studying um, cryptocurrency and um, DeFi was really on the rise. And this is sort of the beginning of, um, of DeFi summer. Everyone remembers that, um, you know, it more or less coincided with the, uh, the, the beginning of the, the pandemic. Um, and so I was actively involved in a, a, a large number of different DAOs. I was ex- I was uh, fairly attracted to um, decentralized exchange infrastructure in particular, uh, just because I think that it's probably the most um, important uh, primitive for um, for blockchains to master. If uh, decentralized finance is going to be you know um, something that is of benefit and um, you know becomes an important component of the the world's financial system, um, and so I was, you know, I was in the the you know, the, the Kaiba community. I was I've even a part of the Uniswap community, um, but I was more active, I think, in um, in Bancor's um, in Bancor's community, especially during the launch of its DAO. 
um, when B2.1 started to go live. And uh, yeah, over the, the back end of, of 2020, I started writing um, some of the first uh, DAO policies. And um, I met the, the Bancor founders and um, continued to work with them um, up until January of 2021 when one of them asked me, you know, like, why do I have so much time to, uh, to commit to, uh, researching these things and, and working with the, uh, working with the developers, uh, cause I was just a volunteer at that stage. And I said that, you know, I'm, I, I'm technically still under contract to the Australian government. I'm just not allowed to, to go to work right now. But as soon as the lockdown measures are alleviated, um, I will probably not be able to continue, uh, working the way that I have. Um, so they reached out the the day after that conversation and offered me a full-time contract um, as a, uh, a researcher. And so I left my job with the Australian government and started working full-time as a contractor for Bancor in January of 2021. Uh, later that year, I think I was the, um, the head of the research department. Um, and then in October of last year, um, I was asked to, uh, to helm the project, essentially take over the CEO position. Um, so it's been a, a, a rather, um, you know, this is, you know, career advancement on crypto time, essentially. Um, but yeah, during that time, I've been involved with um, essentially every um, every aspect of the, the project's development, um, looking at, um, you know, the, the major mathematical sort of conceptualization of, of what we do and also sort of speaking to um, smart contract developers and front-end developers and, um, and helping to develop the products. Um, from a high level. Nice, nice. Uh, I think that's the, you had a really interesting uh, journey there. I think the first person I've heard that had a science background kind of move into to that crypto uh, uh, landscape. Um, but yeah, before we, we dive into carbon, I wanted to maybe frame the conversation a little bit today uh, in terms of where, where you see the state of the current X landscape. What, what are some of the things that have worked so far with the current models and uh, what problems still persist in your mind? I think all of the models, all of the models work. It's just a question of who they work for. So um, the original AMM design, so sort of the Banco V1 days, um, liquidity provision was seen as the responsibility of the project that has the tokens, that's generated the tokens, you know, in a way. And uh, it wasn't really designed to be, I guess, a, a financially performant device onto itself. Um, certainly, you know, the ability to trade with that liquidity as a taker is, um, you know, entirely dependent on uh, the trader's ability to predict market movements and profit from them. But liquidity provisioning in sort of the passive um, context was never really anticipated as being very profitable. And so those protocols weren't really designed uh to to function that way um and so at that, at that time um you know there was no front end component that allowed um users to to provide liquidity directly to a decentralized exchange the the first protocol to allow users to do that themselves was was uniswap and that really sort of kicked off the um you know this idea that being a passive liquidity provider can be or should be expected to be um a, an investable vehicle um of course isn't um the um you know as as many have pointed out myself included um and you know many other uh 
commentated on on DeFi, uh, liquidity provision in AMM is generally a a losing bet. It is uh, it can be expressed as a short gamma option, or this is at least one of the ways that we can um, interpret using regular financial lingo the uh, the actual um, the actual instrument that you're buying. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, you can think of it as essentially uh, offering rest of the market a type of insurance contract where you are guaranteeing them or offering them compensation if the price of the asset that you're providing liquidity with uh, deviates from whatever the price was after you signed the contract. So it's not really, um, it was never really intended to be financially performant. There were several iterations afterwards um, that I think have kind of moved things in let's maybe a better direction or at least have tried to give liquidity providers uh passive liquidity providers to amms some sort of agency over the uh the decisions that are made right how how their liquidity is traded so for example um in bancor v2 we introduced this concept of what we called amplified liquidity and then i think about nine months after that uh uniswap uh came out with a similar product that they called concentrated liquidity but they it's uh, essentially the same um, the same idea and this is that instead of providing liquidity uh across an infinitely enumerated range right between zero and infinity dollars instead you can just concentrate your liquidity within a certain price bound um, and if the market happens to move outside of those bounds then you are going to be left um, you know, holding the bag on whatever the the least valuable asset is of the pair. Uh, but if you are clever enough to keep that liquidity in range, or if your uh, specific outlook on which way the markets are going to develop is accurate enough, and you and the you know the the price of those assets remains inside of the bounds that you've defined, then you can actually earn um, significantly more fees compared to the liquidity that you're providing because the bid ask spread. Um, is still relatively low compared to the the slippage that you're providing to the market, and so this was really the first, um, let's say, step in the direction of trying to address the the implicit or explicit profitability of liquidity providers in an AMM. Um, but it still didn't really work out. Um, the, the I think that I. Um, authored along with my colleagues um stefan bush and nate hinman and um and nicholas welsh i actually did i think the first um full um full data set analysis of uniswap v3 um back in i want to say 2021 um probably october november of 2021 so we we literally analyzed every single position um on uniswap v3 to try and determine uh just how effective a financial instrument this idea of um of you know bounded ticked liquidity um actually is and we were rather generous i would say in our um in the way that we handled the data because you know there are multiple perspectives that you can bring to that kind of analysis and you know just the the fact that your liquidity is no longer in range but that it used to be um can mean that the il um or the you know the effective profits and losses at least the loss component um can be quite dramatic on a concentrated liquidity protocol it, it, it spikes very very quickly um but you could also make the argument that you know this these aren't liquidity positions but are limit orders in a sense right by the dip and um 
Certainly, that's uh, one of the arguments that's espoused by the Uniswap v3 uh, white paper authors. And so we kind of, we chose to observe that, like, let's give these liquidity providers the benefit of the doubt and um, and analyze these positions um, such that their losses essentially stop um, as soon as the market price reaches the, the border price of their liquidity range, um, which is, um, you know, this is the... Um, it should give the most modest estimate um, of the um, the profits, uh, or the most modest estimate of the um, the losses, right? The financial harm um, done to to liquidity providers by the rest of the market. And even under that, um, you know, even in that context, where we you know we essentially stop the IO calculation um, as soon as the market reaches that price boundary. Um, we found that no more than 50% of liquidity providers on Uniswap v3 were profitable. And um, more importantly, the 50% that weren't profitable had lost a lot more value than the value that had been accrued to the liquidity providers who were profitable. So it still didn't really look like it had done anything to address um, the uh, you know the, the the financial instrument that is represented by the AMM, and of course that makes sense, right? And it's, it, the these concentrated liquidity protocols, you know, Bankor V two included, um, are just leveraged AMMs, right? They, you'll see in um, the Bankor patent um, that describes this process, and even in the Uniswap V three white paper. Um, they talk about virtual token balances. Basically, the idea of taking, you know, the liquidity that's in an AMM and pretending that there's more liquidity than there's really there. So, if you want to take like a 10x amplification, for example, and you've only got 100 ETH or something at a certain position, the um, the bonding probe will behave um, as if it's got a thousand ETH or 10,000 ETH or something. And this is how you achieve the better slippage rates, but also is how, um, you know, you end up being completely depleted of your risk asset or your cash asset, depending on which way the, the market's moving. So the, you know, if you have a look at things like uh, Milamidigliani theory, um, it says that all, you know, everything else being the same in a tax-free system, um, you know, a leveraged um, a leveraged capital structure is going to perform exactly the same um, as a system that has no leverage. And I think that that's more or less what we saw um, in those analyses. And uh, we had a, a, a slightly different view. So um, after um, after recognizing that the this uh, amplified or leveraged liquidity of the AMM was not really making things any better. We instead tried to build a model that was socializing profits and losses. Um, so, in essence, um, using the, the BNT token as a, a way to in, to, um, to to act as a numerator, I suppose, across the entire protocol, um, we actually implemented something like an insurance strategy, where um, the uh, the performance of of pools that were doing very well could offset the losses. Um, of pools that weren't performing very well, at least relative to the hodl position. Um, and we actually went through two iterations of this. The first one was was V2.1, which was pretty gas inefficient, um, but still held up relatively well. Um, and then with V3, which was a, sort of a reimagined, um, optimized version of that protocol. And things were actually working pretty well under that scheme. And it's possible that, um, that in a, an alternative timeline, um, that model actually could have sustained itself indefinitely. Um, the problem that we faced was that um, over two thirds of the liquidity in the system were provided by three hours capital and uh, and Celsius. 
And so when they were facing bankruptcy and other issues, um, when they started to withdraw their liquidity, it ended up in what was effectively a bank run, um, and which it massively impacted the uh, the token supply of the project and and kind of uh, wrecked the the insurance mechanism that we had in place there. And so, you know, and now having been through sort of two different um, two different models, the first one being just you know leverage the liquidity so that you can get more fees, and then the second one being well maybe we can sort of socialize profits and losses across the entire system and and help to to compensate uh, liquidity providers fairly that way. Um, having failed both of those mo- both of those models, um, when I was asked to redesign um, the the Dex infrastructure for the project. I was really starting to focus a lot more on how people actually trade, right? The, the the weird thing about an AMM is that liquidity providers don't think about themselves as traders, even though that's actually what they are. And in a sense, um, things like impermanent loss, or at least the the impermanent loss that makes people feel upset, is um, a direct result of the fact that they have traded badly. But it's also, you know, it's it was their choice to provide liquidity to the exchange in the first place. And it's the exchange that prescribes for them a specific trading strategy, uh, which is usually, you know, this this short gamma um, option that I that I discussed earlier. Uh, but with carbon, I thought, you know, we've really got an opportunity here to learn directly from traders how they would prefer to trade. And you know, I was inspired by conversations that we'd had directly with people that would uh, categorize themselves as like DeFi super users, but also, um, you know, mammoth or you know whale traders on on Binance and Coinbase and so forth. Um, I was inspired by um, you know YouTubers who do you know who sort of sponsored their own content and um, you know cast uh, daily analyses of, of the charts and described how they would going to trade them and that kind of thing, and. I wanted to build a protocol for them, right? People that aren't providing liquidity for its own sake, but people who are um, rather creating orders, right? People who are speculating on the the price of an asset and are happy to mark out the price of what they're, uh, you know, what they're happy to trade for at some point in the future. And so we're kind of, you know, it's a really thorough departure, I think, in terms of bank on narrative, because it really started out as a project that would um, put the needs of the industry first, right? The needs of token projects and, uh, you know, new protocols and their tokens above all, right? And it, at the time, in, you know, in 2017, 2018, this was the priority, you know? It, it, DeFi didn't even really have a name or a face yet. The, making sure that things could be exchanged with each other, I think, was the priority back then. And it's kind of become a priority over time that these protocols should be financially performant. And with you know just recognizing that the the game has changed in a sense, um, I think justifies the fact that um, the AML model should be retired in the favor of something that is. Um, a little bit more user centric and has a lot more flexibility, and allows the the person who's interacting with it to decide how and when they trade. Um, and that is, I think, the only way that we can um, address the uh, the productivity of um, of decentralized exchanges. Right. I, I think almost by its definition, the AMM will always be um, the thing that benefits the project, but never the liquidity provider. And in a sense, an order book like system like Carbon, it's kind of the opposite. 
it it's no longer the case that uh you know the liquidity provider is uh is servicing the project um by providing liquidity to it and now it's the um you know the the person who is interacting with that system um that is almost you know influencing projects um of the you know, of the tokens which they are trading uh, and i actually i prefer that system it's a little bit more bottom up it's a little bit more you know uh, grassroots, and uh, I think it actually leads to more functional, more healthy markets. Got it. Yeah, that's super interesting. A, lo- a lot to unpack there. Um, just just to recap, from for what I what I got from what you were saying, for the most part, Texas today have have worked to a degree. Um, maybe not for all participants, um, mostly for the projects themselves, but it's brought uh, more per- permissionlessness to crypto trading, and they made some improvements and efficiency from the original model with with all the um concentrate concentrated liquidity protocols we see today but on the other hand uh liquidity providers or lps and DeFi, and they're still at the mercy of the market um because they don't control the price and flow of assets that that happens with the buyers and sellers um and so what happens is a lot, oftentimes these lps need to rely on the fees to over to uh, overcome the input loss that they may incur or the protocol needs to uh, heavily incentivize these liquidity providers with uh, their own tokens. Right. Um, but it, it should be pointed out as well that even the takers, right, even the people that are trading against the LPs, they don't even get a very good deal out of this. And it's not necessarily because of things like slippage and so forth, because I think that that just comes, that's just a, a consequence of, of, you know, of indecisive markets. But rather the, the AMM mechanism itself um, can be weaponized against um the person that's trading with it um and this is kind of manifested not just in terms of front running which was the the original um you know the original attack um in in you know in these systems but it's kind of matured into much more sophisticated systems things like um you know sandwich attacks um in, in you know in the uniswap v2 sort of paradigm but then even with uniswap v3 and it's been pointed out several times that there are ways that you can um, sort of provide liquidity out of range um and then um sandwich someone by forcing them off of the um the current price um on a on a v3 pool and into some completely other region it might be separated by you know sort of many tick spacings um but if they haven't set up the parameters correctly um, then they will, you know, be forced to pay um, a much worse price than what they were expecting to get. So really, the um, the only um, the only beneficiaries I think out of the AMM system are the token projects that don't have to deal with listing costs, uh, that don't have to deal with, for example, you know, um, the onboarding of a market maker and and other legal issues. Um, implied thereof, um, they're the ones that really get the the most out of these systems. But the people that are providing the liquidity and the people that are trading the, against that liquidity, they're the ones that are getting um, are getting the, the the short end of the stick in in all of these systems. Yeah, got it for sure. Um, and so I guess that 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 this leads to what you guys are building at Carbon. Um, when I when I was first reading about it, it took me a little bit. To understand exactly what what the protocol was building, since I think everyone in DeFi is, is sort of used to the the concept of earning yield um, from from earning from provision of liquidity, and you you guys kind of flipped the model on its head, where uh, to your point, it's less about fees, but uh, but order execution and, and the price that in which you're willing to buy or sell 
um, these assets. So I think it would be good for you to maybe talk about exactly what you're building at Carbon, how it works, um, <laughs> and, and how it's solving some of these, these problems that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think you're right. The, we kind of conditioned, uh, blockchain participants over the last few years. Um, I think by sort of ramming AMM theory down their throat, come to expect that this is like the only way that a decentralized exchange can operate. Um, you know, they're used to liquidity pools, pool tokens, bonding curves, this kind of stuff. Um, but carbon kind of does away with most of that. So we don't even, you know, we, we don't refer to people that interact with the protocol as liquidity providers. Um, we don't issue pool tokens. There are no liquidity pools. Rather, carbon is a lot more like eBay in the sense that, you know, you might have um, some Bitcoin or wrapped Bitcoin if you're on Ethereum um, and you think, you know, this this next bull run, you know, we didn't break 100K like we were promised in the last bull run, but this bull run, we're definitely going to break 100K. And if that's really what you're waiting for, um, if you're sort of disciplined and that's the, the price target that you have, there's, you know, there's nothing that should be stopping you from, um, you know, going onto Binance or Coinbase today and then, you know, providing that, um, those Bitcoins to the order book and, uh, and offering a price at a hundred K, right? Maybe if you've got like a handful of these Bitcoins, you might think, you know what, I'll sell one at a hundred K, one at 105, one at 110 or something, just in case the price goes a little bit further up, but knowing full well that, you know, we might not reach those price targets or something. But this is actually a very natural way to trade. Um, I think what's a very unnatural way to trade is to say, you know what? I think that the price of Bitcoin is going to go absolutely nowhere. And whatever the price is today is going to be the same price it is next week. And therefore, I'm going to put, you know, my Bitcoin in an order system um, that, you know, allows me to withdraw more value at the end of, of that time period, so long as the price hasn't changed, which is kind of the AMM perspective. So... You're right in the sense that we don't have like a, you know, there is no fee model. We don't say that people that are interacting with the protocol are there for fee accrual. What you are trying to do is trade well. You know, if you, you know, if you're the, the same person that says, you know what, I'm going to sell my Bitcoin for 100K, but I also appreciate that after we hit that price target, it's possible that Bitcoin will then capitulate back down. And, you know, the, uh, the top of Bitcoin in the last cycle was, you know, somewhere around 68 or $69,000. Maybe, maybe we're going to revisit that previous high, um, to test it for, you know, test it for support. And this is precisely the kinds of commentary that you get when you speak to people that are trading, you know, Bitcoin in, in very long time frames. Um, you know, I defer to, um, some of the more sober, um, you know, analysts in the space, people like Benjamin Cohen, they will say things like, you know, concede right now that you're not going to be able to call the top and not be able to call the bottom. Um, and that, you know, you should set price targets where you are improving, um, you know, your valuation over time um, without, you know, refusing to uh, to trade stuff or, you know, without overhodling um, or, you know, over committing or over investing in particular assets. And that's really what carbon is designed to, to do. So this is how it works. Um, the smart contracts are, are very, very lean. You come to the system and you say, you know, here are my coins, whatever they are. Maybe it's wrapped Bitcoin, maybe it's ETH. 
and you say, these are, these are the amount that I'm happy to provide and this is the price that I want to sell them for, right? An actual rate. So if it's ETH, you might say, I want to sell these ETH for you know $5,000 each. And that's all the, the system does, right? It takes those ETH, it slaps a price tag on it, and it sits on chain and waits for someone to take that price from you. Now, if the price at the moment of ETH is like $2,000, then of course, no one's going to buy your ETH from you for $5,000, right? They can go and buy ETH somewhere else for $2,000. So you're going to be waiting a little while. But eventually, you know, if you're if you're right in your prediction that that's where the market's headed, then the price of ETH might, you know, it will be worth $5,000 again one day. And when it gets there, um, people will find your uh, the price that you're offering more attractive. Now, I often get asked, you know, does this mean that there's an Oracle system or, you know, when does the liquidity become active or do you need keepers or something like who executes this trade? And the answer is, I think, much simpler than what people think, which is that like no one does. Uh, we're just waiting for someone to come and take that trade from you when they find it attractive. And there are steps that we can make to, to you know, um, to make sure that if the market has an appetite um, to buy ETH from you at $5,000, then we, you know, there are ways that we can drive pedestrian traffic towards that order. And I think the most efficient is to make sure that we're correctly plugged into aggregators. Um, and so I'm excited that we've recently just finished a, a lengthy integration process with OneH. Um, but even prior to that, um, we've already been integrated by OpenOcean, which I think is the preferred aggregator of, of MetaMask. Um, so if someone goes to their MetaMask slop application and, you know, tries to buy ETH at around about the time where ETH is trading at $5,000, your order will be found and people will, you know, choose to buy that from you in much the same way that if you put, you know, a, a rare trading card or something on eBay and priced it at $10,000, people might not buy it from you right away, but when the market heads that direction, someone will buy it from you eventually. And so we do everything that we can to make sure that that process is as efficient as possible, including um, backrunning people's trading errors. So uh, one of the most common trading errors is that people will avoid using aggregators for reasons that I still don't understand. Um, and they will instead trade directly via a DEX front end, uh, which if you're doing this, you need to stop doing that right away. <laughs> it's a very, very bad idea. Um, but people will still do it. And so let's say that you're offering your ETH 5,000 and then someone uh, goes to Uniswap and buys it for 5,100, right? They got a, they got a worse deal, um, but that's still an opportunity that we can, we can take to make sure that your order gets filled. Um, and so our arbitrage system will back run their transaction and then use um, the cash that that's extracted from that trade um, to then fill your order and extract the ETH out the other side. So we basically um, have created something like, you know, the, this kind of basis liquidity, this um, this full back end of of uh, like resting limit orders, a true limit order protocol um, that is uh, thoroughly plugged into the aggregator space, um, but also in the presence of an arbitrage bot that observes those orders against all of the X liquidity at the same time. And so it's actually a very, very nimble, like very lightweight, but also a very powerful way to trade. Um, because even trading spot has its disadvantages, right? If you are uh, someone that is, you know, um, that is wanting to sell your ETH at, at $5,000 at spot price, 
um, then you might find that, um, you know, because of sandwich attacks and front running and so forth that I mentioned earlier, that it's actually very difficult to get a good price on Ethereum unless you are, you know, well acquainted with things like, uh, like flashbots or, or other protection mechanisms. Um, but even then, you know, block builders might see your, your transaction through an uncled um, block. But that doesn't really happen like that much anymore um, since the uh, proof of stake um, consensus system on Ethereum went live, but it can still happen. Um, and so the risk is like much less if you're using um, things like flashbots, but it's not zero. Um, whereas in our system, if you just say, you know what, I'm just going to put a, a $5,000 price tag on my ETH and just set it up and let someone take it from me. It's literally guaranteed that you will get that $5,000 trade if someone's got the appetite to buy it from you. And if that's the current price of ETH right now, then your confidence is relatively high. And so this means that the the you know the the price from an, a price execution perspective, it's actually more certain, uh, much safer to to trade via a limit order system like the one that we've provided than to try and trade spot on a dex. And I think that that is. The, the important sort of take-home message here is that I, we've kind of become complacent, right? AMMs were our first and worst attempt to to build decentralized exchanges on a blockchain, um, or at least they were the you know they were our second and only moderately better than um, you know the sort of SQL style um, off-chain, on-chain um, you know mess that was things like Ether Delta, which were you know a really great inspiration I think for for the beginnings of DeFi, but obviously not a very good way to build a, a central a, a decentralized exchange. And so we've kind of taken the um, I'd say the lessons of the last like three or four years, um, and we've really built something that I think is very specifically tailored for the needs of market participants, not for projects. And so if you are sort of frustrated um, with the fact that you haven't been able to place, you know, a reliable limit order somewhere, um, or if, you know, you haven't been able to trade spot before and get the actual, you know, the tokens that you thought that you were uh, entitled to because you've been sandwich attacked or front run or something else, um, then just know that, you know, we have built a system that is immune to these kinds of um, adversarial influences or even just inconveniences. And you get all of these things um, for what is actually a lot less gas um, than, um, than, you get on a, um, than you get on competing systems. So it's not even the case that we've built something so sophisticated that it costs, you know, a huge amount to interact with. It's actually a lot cheaper than than even Uniswap V3 or V2 is. So it's um yeah, it's uh it's a, a slight change of pace. I think it does require a bit of re-education because, you know, like I said before, we have spent so many years trying to teach this the the entire industry about uh, AMMs. And now I'm trying to get them to This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. Get it. You know, it's uh it's a it's a bit of an uphill climb, but we're certainly getting there. Um, the people that have been using carbon so far, I think, have uh, we've had nothing but but positive um, a positive reception. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's a, a bear market, and uh, you know, <laughs> uh, there there aren't as many uh, aren't as many people um, you know perusing the, the the protocol offerings as they used to be. Um, but I'm still very optimistic that we've got something very special, and I'm, uh, I'm I think that it's gonna be a very important component of the you know whatever the next phase of DeFi looks like. Yeah, cool. So to recap, you have um, 
you have these users who create these these trading strategies in Carbon, and I, you, this is what you guys refer to them as makers, and they're similar to the existing liquidity providers in in current name AMMs, since they're providing the the liquidity for these uh, trading activities. And then on the other hand, you have um, users or takers who perform these or execute these spot trades using the makers' liquidity, and these can be, uh, I guess, just users directly using the carbon front end or as you mentioned uh dex aggregators like one inch um i guess my question is is there any cases where um people have these or makers have these live strategies but their orders don't get um fulfilled for some reason um like are orders always likely to be i guess executed um when the market reaches those uh those price ranges yeah, it's kind of an abstract question. There's, there really isn't such thing as like a market price, you know, capital letters. There's really just the the last price that someone paid for something. Um, I used to um, I used to give these kinds of like simulation seminars um, on our Discord every week, where we would have a look at um, you know the price data from different um, from different API sources and compare them. And so, you know, you might it might surprise you that um, you know, Link was once quoted um, you know, as having a price of zero, right, by um by coin market cap. And if we have a look at, you know, the price of like stable coins, especially things like USDC for some reason, um, if you get um if you get the price data from some API sources, um, you know, it will show these like amazing wicks, right? All the way up to like $13, $14, or sometimes down to like just a few cents. And I can't know for sure, but I speculate that one of the reasons that this happens is that that um that the, you know, whatever that data aggregator is is using, um, it might be sensitive to things like sandwich attacks, which you know do result in, you know, these enormous spikes in the price of of the thing that people are trying to trade with. Um, and so that's a, that's a good question, right? Let's say that you did have, um, a limit order to sell your USDC when it was worth $13, right? Or when it was worth 13 USDP, even though the, you know, the API that you're, you're reading says that there was, you know, a few minutes where the price of USDC was worth $13 doesn't mean that someone's actually going to pay 13 USDT for your USDC in that time period. And why? Well, the reason is, is that the, these market prices, they're just guesses, right? Well, I mean, they're measuring it, they're looking at it, but it doesn't infer that that's kind of the market consensus on the price of that asset. And this is, I think, one of the things that's generally very poorly understood, not just in, in cryptocurrency, but maybe in all liquid markets. Um, and that's the, you know, the price code that you, that you get, right? When you look up the price of gold or when you look up the, you know, the exchange rate of the Australian dollar versus the US dollar. You basically never get these rates. You know, they, they're constantly changing. Um, and, you know, the very act of you, you know, taking the market at a particular price causes the price of the market to move. Um, and so in that sense, we could, you know, we could uh, have a look at other situations where uh, if someone, say, put up some liquidity for, you know, um, for ETH at exactly $2,500, but only provided like a very small amount of ETH at that price range, um, then the gas adjusted price of that ETH might be a little bit different. 
And this would mean that, you know, you would need to wait for the market to go a little bit higher than 2,500 um, in order for, for example, an aggregator to pick it up. Um, but also, um, if the number of units that you're selling is small compared to what someone can get somewhere else, then maybe just for the convenience of being able to do everything in one transaction, um, or even the, the, the gas savings of doing everything in one transaction, uh, might mean that people will still prefer to take it from somewhere else at a higher price. And this is something that's true um, of markets generally. So, for example, uh, one of the one of the examples that I've spoken about previously is things like uh, like paper cups or plastic cups, like the type that you buy to you know cater a, a wedding or something like that or a birthday party. Um, there are some distributors that will sell you you know paper cups by you know uh, you know in plastic sleeves of like a dozen cups or something, um, and they might be very very cheap. Um, but if you're trying to cater for a, um, you know, a very, very large crowd, then you may prefer to get the cups from like a different distributor that will sell them to you by the kilogram, right? Like boxes and boxes of these things. And even though you might be getting a slightly worse rate per cup, just logistically, um, you know, these businesses do functional volume. And so, you know, part in a way, um, the, the, the convenience saving or the um you know the logistic costs of moving so much inventory is actually kind of priced in and it means that those things are actually worth slightly more than if you were buying them in, in lower volumes um and this is true in cryptocurrency as well even on a traditional um auto book you will kind of you might find sometimes um especially because cryptocurrency doesn't have um you know or cryptocurrency exchanges aren't appropriately equipped with things like clearing houses and and um, you know, other things that, you know, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is, you'll actually find that some limit orders, um, they're, if they're small enough, um, will actually remain unfulfilled, um, even if the prices move past it, if um, someone hasn't been able to close that, that, that position efficiently. Um, they kind of get lost in the mix. So there are, you know, there are these other aspects to it. And I think it is helpful to remember that you are literally making a market, right? You are offering um, a certain amount of stuff for sale at a certain price. And, you know, the amount of stuff that you're selling is just as important as the amount that it costs to buy it. And so, you know, your neighbor uh, might be offering a slightly worse price than you, but they might be offering 10 times more inventory. Um, and if, you know, if there's a, if there's a buyer somewhere that's looking for 10 times more inventory than what you're selling, they might just buy it from your neighbor, even though your neighbor is offering a slightly worse price. So there are these, um, you know, there are these kinds of things that you need to take into account. It's not a, a system that guarantees execution at a certain market price because there is no such thing as a certain market price. Rather, what we do is make sure that there is every opportunity for um, for you to find an appropriate buyer for the inventory that you're offering and at the price that you're happening to sell it at. But that doesn't mean that we can guarantee an exchange any more than eBay offers people, you know, a guarantee that if they sell their PlayStations at a lower price, that they will be bought first because it just doesn't work that way. You know, they, if you go to, you know, to eBay right now um, and sort, you know, PlayStation's highest price to lowest price, you might find that for some for some reason or, or another, you actually prefer to buy a PlayStation that's a slightly higher price than the, the cheapest one available, either because it's closer to you in terms of, of shipping or, or something else. Um, it could also just be random, right? Some people will just go to eBay and just click PlayStation and just buy the first one that they find without comparing prices. 
And so, no, we we don't offer those guarantees any more than than eBay does. Um, but we do make sure that um, that we're plugged into the the you know the correct aggregation um, technology, and that you know users can um, can see how liquidity is enumerated and priced as effectively as possible, so that there are the best chances of being executed. But there's always some nuance. There's always some fuzzy region around what the quoted market price is. Um, that means that you know things like actual market demand, trading volumes, and, and other things. Um, that's really out of our hands. Um, it is really up to the market to decide. But everything other than for those talking points, we've got those bases covered. That makes a lot of sense. But um, but do you think this is uh, maybe a function of? Uh, carbon maybe needing more makers um, to have more strategies, more volume, more liquidity. No, that's actually bad. No. Carbon, carbon, carbon would work with only one maker. With, with only $100 in TVL, it would be just as efficient if it had $100 million of TVL. Right. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's completely immune to, its, um, to the number of makers that are there. Okay. But in terms of driving more volume to carbon, is, is that a, that's also no impact in terms of the goal? amount of make yeah i mean the, correct it's actually better for like us as a protocol like obviously as a the project lead i i want carbon's tvl and volume to be as high as possible you know even if i consider you know things like like nascent tvl to be mostly a vanity metric i still want my vanity metrics to be good uh, volume obviously is not a vanity metric this is like directly how we monetize the system so i want the volumes to be high but it's important to recognize that this is exclusively from sort of the the protocol and business side of things. The actual makers themselves will not benefit at all if the the TBL is higher or if the the volume is higher, um, because you know at the moment right now, essentially every time someone places an order, um, the, it gets executed. You know, it basically right on the button. You know, this there might be like a, a couple of a block delay or something while. Um, you know, while an effective arbitrage route is still being established, but yeah, you know, it, like I said, if you if even if carbon was barren and there was no one on it, and you decided to put one hundred you know dollars worth of ETH up at the current market price, it would still get executed in the next block, regardless of how many makers are in the system or not. We would only have a hundred dollars of TBL, and we would only then do a hundred you know dollars of volume, um, but it would. It would still execute every bit as efficiently as if we had a hundred million dollars of TVL. Right. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Um, I guess moving a little the conversation to sort of the the makers side in terms of what are you what are you seeing today in terms of the usage of carbon? What, what kind of strategies are are the most popular ones being uh, uh, deployed? Yeah, there are a couple of sophisticated makers that are working on what they refer to as like institutional grade trading strategies um, because they're looking to onboard, um, you know, uh, clients essentially through their vault system. Um, and some of these strategies look like things like, um, like trading ETH versus the uh, ETH flexible leverage token, which is um, or the flexible leverage index. Um, so there's a, a project called Index Coup um, that has a product where ETH is effectively contributed um, on uh, or borrowed from a Compound, I think, um, and then um, sold for something like USDC, and then they reborrow ETH with that USDC, and they basically perform that winding, um, you know, as 
as many number of times as is necessary to give the index token that it represents, uh, well, sorry, the index token represented by it, um, a, um, a, a true X exposure to the Ethereum price. So this just means, you know, if, um, if the price of ETH goes up 10%, then the FLI token will go up by 20%. And similarly, you know, if the, the price of ETH goes down by, you know, 10%, then the, uh, the FLI token will go down by 20%. But really the, this is, um, you know, you don't really want to hold the FLI token for very long, but in terms of trading it um, on sort of a daily or weekly time frame, it's a really, really convenient way to um, to introduce leverage into carbon. Um, and so those those types of strategies I've seen uh, work extremely well. Uh, the person that has, is is running that strategy regularly um, told me in um, at, at Paris that he expects to 10x his um, his ETH holdings over the year. Um, thanks to, to Carbon and um, and the FLI token strategy working for him. So that's been extremely performant. Um, there's also, uh, um, you know, I, I think the ETHUSDC trading pair has been extremely popular. Um, you can see on our, um, you know, on our app, there's actually a, a new feature that's just recently been added called the Explorer. And the Explorer allows you to um, to search either by um, by wallet um, or by token pair. And you can kind of peruse uh, all of the different strategies that people have been setting up, what their ROIs are and what their current status is and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think that these, um, you know, it, it, there are the super sophisticated, you know, well-informed trading strategies such as the leverage token one that I just mentioned. But then the, the same vanilla strategies that, you know, that you that you yourself might be running on your you know, Coinbase account are also extremely popular. Things like people saying, you know what, I'm going to scalp ETH when it gets back to this price, right? Or people looking at, you know, at the Bitcoin shot um, and then putting, uh, you know, WBTC um, to sell at, you know, at 30 um, and then to rebuy again at, at 25. So there's, uh, you know, there there are aspects to our system that we haven't quite uh, that we haven't had time to explore, which is the the recurring, um, the recurring limit orders and and rotating liquidity, and maybe we can discuss that next. Um, but these are the, you know, these are the strategies that have proved the the most popular. It's the, you know, it's the the, the big, um, you know, the commanding presence in 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 cryptocurrency and uh, all of the, you know, all of the flavors of the week you know, YouTube technical analysis trends. Um, they, these are the tend to be the tokens that get traded with um, with enormous size. Yeah, you mentioned the, the recurring trading strategy. I think when I saw that one and you guys provided some strategy back tests on it that, that were really pretty impressive uh, when compared to like a traditional AMM. So was was curious if you could talk a little bit more about how that strategy works. Uh, with the buy, buy and sell ranges and, and uh, what you guys saw in your back test. Yeah, so uh, I refer to Carbon as an audiobook-like uh, DEX construction. Um, I say audiobook-like because an audiobook is really just a subset of what Carbon can do. Um, so for, you know, to, to clarify what I mean by this, um, in a conventional audiobook, you would say, here are the number of units of things that I'm trying to sell, and here are, you know, here's the price that I'm willing to sell it at. Um, I mean, you know, that in in reverse, right, if it's your cash asset, you can say, you know, here's how much cash I'm putting up and I'm happy to to buy this other asset, you know, when its exchange rate is whatever. Um, 
but it's still like it's one price, right? It's a certain number of things and a price for all of those things. So it's quite a sort of an immutable bucket. And so um, the way that it would operate if you're executing sort of like a manual grid strategy is that you might say, you know, based on the current Bitcoin price, for example, um, that, you know, I, I've got a bunch of Bitcoin and I, I think we're going to go back to 30K soon to sort of retest that that level, but I'm not confident that it's going to break through. And so I'm going to sell, you know, two or three Bitcoin at the 30K level. And after that trade happens, right? So I, I put my Bitcoin in the book. I walk away for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. I see that the price of Bitcoin gets to 30K. And so now I come back to my Coinbase account or Binance account or whatever. And I see that I've got, you know, now a hundred grand or whatever it is from the sale of my Bitcoin at 30K. Great. But now I want to buy that Bitcoin back when it gets lower, right? I'm not like exiting from Bitcoin permanently. I'm just, you know, trading the the current volatility. And so now that I've got this 100K back in my in my account, um, I'm now going to say, you know what, I, I'm going to buy that Bitcoin back when the price gets to 25K, for example. And so the process here is kind of arduous, right? You're, you're going to interact with the book and Coinbase charges you for that interaction. Um, and when your Bitcoin sells, it charges you for that as well. Um, and then when the money ends up back in your account, you're kind of charged for that, I guess, from, you know, on a taxation level, but I'm, I don't think that Coinbase charges you directly. Um, but then you're going to put that money back in the book now at the 25K level, Coinbase charges you for that. And when the, um, you know, when your trade is executed, you get charged again. Um, but there's kind of a lot of steps here. Like it's a very, um, very hands-on sort of approach. And I think what's been lacking is the ability to just express your desire to remain inside the book at the levels that you want to trade at. So imagine being able to say, you know what, I'm going to put a limit order um, on my Bitcoin um, at 30K, and then I'm going to place a, another limit order to buy Bitcoin back at 25, except I'm only going to fund the sell, right? So I'm only going to provide the book my Bitcoin. And so if the price of Bitcoin goes straight back down to 25 before reaching 30, it's like, damn, right? I didn't get a chance to to sell any and so I can't buy any. But if that first limit order hits, then now you've got some cash that's like ready to buy Bitcoin again if the price comes down to 25. And so what this means is we actually do have a way um, with carbon where you can where you can create a limit order with money that you don't have yet, right? That's contingent on the sale of another token at a completely different price point. And what's interesting about this is that you can, you can trade that essentially in perpetuity. So you can say, you know, you might be of the mind that, you know, this 30K to 25K range is likely to, um, you know, to persist for, for some time longer. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily my position. I'm not providing trading advice here. I'm just saying, you know, it, it might be the case that someone is convinced that we're going to bounce between 30K and 25K for like the next year or something. Um, and with carbon, you can literally constantly sell the Bitcoin that you have at 30 and rebuy it again at 25. And what's really interesting is that when you run these these backtesting simulations, the ones that you were just referring to, and the ones that um, that I said that you know I used to give these seminars on every week, um, what you'll find is that this this mentality that people have 
where you are, you know, where the the aim of the game is to trade exactly twice, right? To to buy the uh, you know buy the exact bottom and sell the exact top, is not even the most profitable way to trade, right? You can miss the the bottom and the top by miles and trade the middle and still end up more profitable than if you did somehow, you know, magically call the the exact bottom and exact top. And that's a it's an important lesson, I think. And so yeah, that's exactly what this backtesting simulator is is designed to uh uh to help you investigate on your own, right? So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't provide any predictions, it doesn't um you know, it, it doesn't try to guess what the the future price targets should be. This is something that you have to do on your own. But it does help you realize that, you know, calling the bottom and calling the top or even trying to predict these things is kind of besides the point. What you're trying to look for really is where the volatility is going to be in between those two things. And carbon is perfectly situated through this kind of rotating liquidity principle um, to take full advantage of those kinds of market movements. And if you go to the Explorer and have a look at, you know, how some of these strategies have been behaving, remember that the protocol isn't really that old. I think we only launched back in um, back in April. Um, and you can see that, you know, despite not having any incentives at all, right, there's no liquidity mining in our system. There's no inflationary token rewards. There's none of that. Um, but you're still seeing people, you know, um, you know, are, are printing these kinds of, you know, 25%, 30%, 40% APRs. Or not APRs, sorry, ROIs. Um, we don't actually report APR or APY. We decided to to stay uh, more in the um, more squarely in the, uh, the the zone of of certainty. I think a lot of people get confused about how APRs and APYs should be calculated. So return on investment is the the number that we that we report. But yeah, it, the point that I'm making is that um, you know it, it compared to AMMs and compared to liquidity mining systems. I think we're actually, you know, the, the the people that are using our system are actually doing extremely well. Um, so yeah, the this kind of rotating liquidity paradigm, um, it's it's powerful enough that I think that we should be confident in leaving behind these kinds of inflationary tokenomics models um, in the past and moving ahead with just studying and um, offering uh, products that help traders um, who are looking to take a positional direction. Um, help them make a, um, a better decision and profit from that kind of intraday or intraweek volatility. Yeah, super cool. Um, and, and since since you brought up the the point of uh, these token incentives with liquidity mining, because carbon doesn't have it doesn't actually, uh, I guess the, these fees for the makers and takers they don't go to anybody, but I, I guess fully goes it goes fully to carbon itself. So. Um, my question is, what, what is what, what is sort of the mandate on these this fee that the protocol is building? And also, um, I, I think you guys don't have a governance token right now for carbon. And so, is is that is there some sort of roadmap for the de decentralization of carbon down the line? Yeah, I mean, carbon carbon's already decentralized. So the the governance the governance token is still BNT, the Bancor token. So carbon is uh, carbon is a, a named product of Bancor. So we're at the, the stage now where, um, you know, Bancor has, uh, you know, a, a fairly decent um, IP stack and, uh, you know, a large number of, um, of different products that it's, that it's contributed to over the years. And I'm very interested in sort of dusting off some of these old contracts and modernizing them and having a, um, a protocol suite 
rather than like a single, um, you know, a single version number that represents everything that the project does. It doesn't make sense anymore. So Carbon is, you know, the Model S. Bancor is Tesla, right? It's a, it's a, a it's a, you know, there's a an organization and a DAO that represents the project, and then uh, there are going to be, a, you know, a suite of of different products that are represented by that. Um, but it's going to be a single DAO. So BNT and VBNT at the moment is still the governance token for for Carbon, as it is for everything that Bancor uh, produces. Um, with respect to the the fee uh, system that you that you were referring to and what the mandate is there, um, essentially, if you are um, you know if you offer your ETH for two thousand dollars, let's say you put up one ETH and say you know I'm, I, I would like two thousand dollars for this ETH, please, you will get exactly two thousand dollars for that ETH, and so your um, you know your profit uh, motive is still going to be um, quoting prices that you think that the market will take you at. Um, and if you're using the the rotating liquidity, um, you know, essentially um, being able to correctly manage, um, you know, the that that intraweek volatility. Um, so you know, if you're selling ETH at two thousand with the expectation of being able to buy it back at fifteen hundred, for example, um, but that's what you get, right? In, in that particular case, that's a you know, that's like a thirty three percent ROI, which is pretty good. Um, the fee that we charge um, on top of that, it, it that's something that the, the that the taker essentially pays to the protocol, and this is a markup, meaning that if you are uh, if you're demanding two thousand uh, dollars for the ETH that you're selling, the taker right the trader that's going to be interacting with your position will pay two thousand dollars plus twenty basis points on top, so that's going to be what two thousand and two dollars. Um, and so it's it's pretty minor. It's you know given the, the the volatility of a lot of these assets, it doesn't change very much. Um, and for assets that are um, that have a stable price, things like USDC, USDT, I think we only charge uh, one tenth of a basis point. So it's practically zero. Um, and so what that means is that um, your profitability is it's not it's not at all determined by by fee structures, and it's determined exclusively by um, the range that you're trading at. So if you if you're lucky enough to buy you know Bitcoin at three thousand five hundred and lucky enough to sell it at sixty nine thousand, then that's your profit. Um, you know that's your twenty x profit. But if um, you know during that process, um, the person that traded with you at three thousand five hundred and the person that traded with you at sixty nine thousand. Um, they will be paying the protocol 20 basis points on top of whatever your quote price is. Um, so it's, it's relatively insignificant. We, you know, the discussions that we had with the DAO um, before launching Carbon was, you know, where to, where to set that fee level and 20 basis points was kind of where we, um, where we settled down on just because, you know, having a look at the overwhelming majority of assets that people, that people trade with. Um, 20 basis points isn't really enough to move the needle with respect to decision making and how people will will choose to trade um but is significant enough that we think that if the protocol becomes sufficiently popular um that it could be a a, a, a you know a sustainable source of revenue for the project in the long term so that's that's really the the point here is that the the fee model in in our system actually goes through the protocol it's a true protocol fee um, whereas the fee model in traditional AMMs is really not quite 
even a fee. It's more like um, it, it's more about determining that um, that bid ask spread um, for the liquidity that you that you are providing, and the you know the simulator, the back testing simulator that I've um, that I've created and that you mentioned before. Um, I think that's a pretty good job of uh, of highlighting um, exactly how that process operates. Got it. Yeah. So, hundred percent fees goes to the protocol. Um, makes sense. Um, so, so what's next for Carbon? I guess. How, what, what are your plans for um, things like cross chain expansion or, or ways to drive greater usage to the platform? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, the like a. a an enormous amount of my time recently has been spent on sort of like uh, like B2B development. Um, and I'm speaking with other projects, um, especially people that are running, um, you know, on-chain hedge funds and, and similar products, asking them like what their needs are, helping them to integrate and that kind of thing. Um, specifically for cross-chain stuff, um, this is a, you know, this is a, a fairly, you know, a fairly nuanced and an abstract sort of question. The I think in general, the participants in the industry are of the mind that you kind of just decide on a on a specific blockchain and and kind of deploy there. And I guess that's also true. Like you can kind of do it that way, but I think it's a very bad, you know, it, it's a bad practice to just kind of spray and pray. Um, I, I prefer to um, to treat these cross-chain deployments as being of like strategic importance. So, for example, um, one of the projects that I'm speaking with right now um, is very, very interested in in carbon. It's the it's precisely the the the, the type of product they've been asking for, or looking for, um, and so they are a um, I guess a type of yield aggregator. Um, but they they're trying to coin the the term for themselves real yield, which I've I've heard thrown around the industry a, a bunch of times. So I don't think that they're the you know they're the first to think of it. Um, but they are certainly taking it seriously. So they're kind of like a you know almost like a Wi-Fi, but with a, a more tri-fi leaning, and um, are looking for ways to generate their own alpha, right? So they refuse to use things like liquidity mining programs and other things, and are explicitly looking for um, you know other financial instruments to use. Um, to to generate um, you know to generate value for their protocol and for their customers that way, um, and so carbon as opposed to you know conventional AMMs and as opposed to liquidity mining programs and so forth is like much more attractive to them. And so when I was when I was speaking with them, uh, you know there are questions that you know, the first questions that come up are you know which which blockchain are you using now right something you didn't have to ask two years ago but now it's like the first thing the most important thing you ask. Um, and they said that you know they're they're currently sort of in a, a friends and family mode on um, on Arbitrum, but still with you know a, a, a few million dollars worth of liquidity to use and not a whole lot of stuff to to use on Arbitrum with it. Um, but looking to to move to Ethel One um, eventually so that they can you know um, they could do things on both of those fronts. And so, you know, it's these kinds of partnerships that you look for. And so I can I can say now, like finally, okay, here's here's our you know, our launch partner for um, for Arbitrum. And so I'm sort of waiting for um, a commitment there. And so, you know, these these B2B processes are are a little bit longer, um, a little bit more more structured, but um also I, I kind of prefer them. because uh, it means that, you know, when we're 
setting up our deployment scripts and um, and getting things ready. We've got someone, you know, on the other end of the of the phone that we can talk to and be like, hey, you know, the things are about to be live, and you know, which which things do you do you want supported or like what are you waiting for that kind of thing. So it's these kinds of partnerships that I'm looking for, um, and so you know, I've been um, speaking with projects on. On Mantle, I've been speaking with projects on, you know, Polygon, Optimism. I've been speaking with the founders of Shardium, of Monad, um, of Conflux, which is like a, a Chinese uh, EVM chain that's gaining a lot of traction now. Like, there's there's so many opportunities, but I'm I refuse to just kind of deploy the contract and just kind of market it from Twitter. It's it's just a it's just not how business is is done. Uh, you really need to find the, the right people that want to use your protocol on that system um, or secure a grant or some other um, some other type of um, you know some other type of agreement with the blockchain itself so that you can be um, you know so that you know that when you arrive there that you're really hitting the ground running. Um, I think the the biggest mistake that a lot of projects have made over the last couple of years, and um, I don't mind holding sushi swap. I think up is like a, a really good example for this, um, and I don't think that they would mind me doing so. But I think that at one stage they're up to like nineteen deployments um, on different blockchains, and I think only two of them are still active, or three of them are still active. And so that's the kind of thing that we're looking to avoid. Um, so we're looking for very stable, long term you know, sober relationships either with the blockchain itself or with a very important, you know, project that is, you know, really enthusiastic about carbon and about using it from from the get-go. Um, and I think that this is, uh, yeah, these conversations are, are going very, very well. Um, so, yeah, my, you know, all of the blockchains that people like are the same ones that, that are in, you know, in my gun sites. So, you know, I, if, if I can... I would love to foster relationships with projects on on Arbitrum and Optimism, on Avalanche, even on Solana. I've, I've wanted to go to Solana for years, but it's just been uh, it's just been difficult because of um, you know all of the drama with FTX and and other things that have that have been happening, and you know the the instability of their their chain um, at times, which you know, I'm, you know thankfully is is not true anymore, but it was once true. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that hold these things up that I think, uh, you know, residents in DeFi just don't get to see. But yeah, uh, the strategy is the same as it's always been, which is find a, a compelling business case to be on a specific chain and then go there. And I'm um, pursuing every available lead, um, you know, with uh, with all of my energy and enthusiasm. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's always going to be a slow process. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's the... You guys have the right strategy in terms of finding that that product fit first on the on the chain before deploying there. Um, but yeah, super excited for for the things to come, and I think it will definitely benefit for some of the lower gas costs as well on these on um, alternative L ones and and L twos. But yeah, I think that's a that's a good place to to um, wrap up the conversation. Um, wanted to move it to Q A now. If there's anyone in the audience who has any questions. Or Mark or I wanted to say it as well. If anyone is, uh, if anyone suffers from uh, stage fright, I don't mind if you want to DM me uh, privately via Twitter um, or via Telegram. But also, uh, Jen, one of our, our listeners up here, um, hosts Twitter Spaces. I think about three times a week now, 
Um, and so if, you know, if after the call is finished, you think, oh, you know, this would have been a perfect question. I wish I had asked that. Um, you, I don't mind if you want to join one of the uh, one of the other Twitter spaces we have organized this week and, and ask your question there as well. There doesn't look like there'd be any other questions. Um, I think this has been a really informative discussion on the desk landscape and um, re really interesting stuff that you guys are building at Carbon. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about everything you, about the landscape and protocol and yeah, excited to, to keep up on all the new updates. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone. Have a good day. This show was brought to you by Exponential. Exponential is on a mission to democratize access to the best yield opportunities in DeFi. Join Exponential.fi now to start your DeFi investing journey.